I'm so glad that all of you are here with us this morning. Last week, we finished up our series, Enduring Hope. We were in the book of Philippians, and I really do hope that that encouraged you all, that it showed you what it looked like to live our faith real and authentically for the Lord, um, just in just right community with one another. And so if you, if you missed some weeks of that series, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it because it was just so encouraging and uplifting and just true about how we just live out our faith with one another. Um, and I kicked off that series, which is funny. Ben was joking that I now just start all of the series. That's my role here. Um, but I'm also kicking off this series, Empty the Stage, that we're starting this week. And we, through this series, we really just want to remind ourselves why we gather, why we're here with one another, why we meet in kingdom communities, why we come on a Sunday, why we go to events and prayer nights and worship nights. And we want to ask ourselves, what if all of this was stripped away? The band, the coffee, I know we're all very serious about the coffee. I'm very serious about the coffee. That's very important to me. Um, the, the nice pews, just the, our awesome sound team that, hi, that lets um, you all hear me if I had to shout at you. If all of that was stripped away and it was just us and Jesus, what would be left? What would that feel like for you? What would that look like for you to live your life in a way where, what if we didn't have this building what would gatherings look like? Would we be outside in the park every Sunday? What would that look and feel like? We got a taste of it in COVID, all of us did, of what is it like when we don't have the luxury to come into this space and see these things. But through this series, we just want to remind ourselves of what Jesus wants to do in and through us when we meet here and when we come here and when we gather together. And through this series, because it's called Empty the Stage, we are going to do things a little differently from week to week. We're not going to strip everything away. We're not going to make you stand in the parking lot, and um, we're not going to make you teach instead of me. But what we are going—well, I'm not going to be teaching again this series, so other people will have to. But um, we're, we are going to switch things up a little bit. We're going to do some different rhythms of, of prayer and of worship and of teaching. And what I ask of all of you in this series is just— open hearts, because we do get into this rhythm and this routine of what this looks like. And so when we switch it up, it can sometimes feel a little different, feel a little strange. So I just ask you to come with open hearts, ready to receive what the Lord has for us in this series, but also just expectant hearts. So if you can just be praying for what the Lord wants to do in and through you while we go through the series, what he wants to do in and through us over the next few weeks, that's what I ask of you. So just open hearts and expectant hearts. That makes me think of Friday Night Lights. But anyway, open hearts and expectant hearts. That's what we're asking of you. Um, and as we start this series to kick us off, I just want us all to reflect on a time when we were really, really enthusiastic about our faith, almost to the point that it felt maybe a little bit embarrassing. For me, this was in middle school, which in hindsight is a really good time to be super embarrassed, right? At the time, it doesn't feel that way. But now I'm like, that was a good choice for me to be embarrassed in middle school and not another season of my life because everyone's embarrassed about something in middle school. But even looking back, I'm still slightly mortified about some of the things that I did. Um, I rode the bus to and from school, and I would sit in my little bus seat with my Walkman listening to Casting Crowns. Those were simpler times, right? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, what a Walkman is, then you might be like 10 or maybe even less than 10 years younger than me. How many people have never listened to a CD on a Walkman? Anyone? 
Wow, okay, yeah, let's all just soak that in for a second, that there are people in this room that have never listened to a CD on a Walkman. Okay, um, but I digressed. So I would sit in my bus seat listening to the voice of truth while one single tear rolled down my face <laughs> like I was in some dramatic music video for the Lord. I'd be like, the voice of truth, you know, it tells me a different story. <laughs> and the voice of truth, it says, do not be afraid. And, you know, that was a good song. Tell me you're not going to go listen to that album after this. You are. On your way home, you're going to put on some casting crowns. I know you are. Um, that song was great. But I would sit there in this really dramatic fashion, worshiping to the Lord on my bus. And if I heard someone say a word that I thought was bad or maybe talk about something inappropriate, I would push pause on casting crowns. And I would tell them how I felt about that out of my love for the Lord, right? So, yeah, my first journey into evangelism was my middle school bus, and I'm just here to tell you that it did not go well. Like, it didn't go great for me. I'm just truly embarrassed thinking about some kids that are like, man, remember that girl who used to ride our bus, and she would, like, be crying and lip-syncing to something on her Walkman that we couldn't hear? Yeah, um, hopefully they just blocked that out, like we all try to do with everything in middle school. But when I look back on that, it actually was a really sweet time. Because even though I didn't really know what I was doing, I didn't really know how to share my faith, I didn't know how to do this, this correctly, or whatever that even means, what is correct about sharing our faith, right? It's just what the Lord calls us to. It was so sweet because it was just pure. It was out of the overflow of the relationship that I had with him. I had fallen so deeply in love when I gave my life to Christ that I was like, I just got to cry on the bus about it. I just got to share my faith with whoever doesn't want to listen to me about it. And I think that the Lord just has something for us when we reflect on those times where we were just so unashamed about our faith. There's been so many places since then where I have been able to just experience the Lord in, in the church I grew up in, in um, my campus ministry, different trips that I've gotten to go on and experience Him, in the grace churches I've gotten to be, about, be a part of. All of it has just built up this beautiful experience that I've gotten to have with the Lord. And I can remember once at a prayer night, we were asked to close our eyes and think about the place that we felt the most connected to God to start with. Where do we feel the most, the, the greatest closeness to the Lord? And I closed my eyes and I thought of all these different places. I thought of a cabin in the mountains or a crisp fall morning or church services like this or being in community with people I love. And then the Holy Spirit brought this picture to mind for me of me just driving in my car. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying that. That is where you are most connected to the Lord, because that is where you are bringing just true, authentic worship that is connected to his heart, where you worship and pray and sometimes, let's be honest, yell at God and like ugly cry. Sometimes that's happened. I'm like, are people looking at me like from the side while I'm like weeping in front of Jesus? But connecting about the things that are really hard in life that we're trying to share with him and find breakthrough for. And this really surprised me when the Holy Spirit first gave me this picture of me driving in a car, but it revealed so much to me of what true and authentic worship and relationship looks like with the Lord. It's that personal connection with Him where we wrestle through those hard things. Now, I'm sure as I was sharing, some moments came to mind for you, different worship spaces, different times that you fully encountered and experienced Him, maybe had an ugly cry of your own or did something embarrassing in the name of the Lord. 
So I want to ask you today, when was the last time you felt that way? When was the last time, the last season, that you felt that way consistently, regularly, that you were in this deep and authentic connection with the Lord that made you do some maybe embarrassing things in his name? What are you looking for when you walk through those doors each week and come and sit down in this pew? What are you hoping for? What are you hoping for when you leave and you go out to live the kingdom work that God is calling you to? Ultimately, the question we want to ask as we start this series is, why are you here? Why are you here today and why do you come to church at all? Why do you gather with like-minded believers? Why do you enter into this space? What are you hoping to do and receive? I think sometimes we get so consumed by the regularity of it, the rhythm of it, that we forget to experience the revelation of it. The thing that God has for us every single time that we step foot into this room to be in community with other believers. And I think we need a reminder of what it does look like when everything is stripped away and it's just us and Jesus in a car just trying to work through the hard things that life has for us. So as we go into this series, I want us to remember, to remind ourselves of why we enter into this space and what we're hoping God will do in us and through us when we meet here. For this week, as we get started, um, we are going to be in Amos chapter 5. Now, wait, wait, before you even open your Bibles or your phone, the Bible app, and turn to Amos 5, I have three things that I want to say to you before you read a single word from Amos chapter 5. The first is that this is a really hard text. It's a difficult text, and I don't mean difficult to understand, I mean it's challenging, really challenging. And I'm not going to lie to you, that's hard for me. <laughs> Because what I want to do when I come into this room is just speak all of this loving encouragement over you. I want to tell you how God sees you as sons and daughters and that he has this great inheritance for you and that you're co-heirs with Christ and that when you walk out of this door today, everything will be good and easy because you're blessed and loved by him. And while all of that is true, I think sometimes we miss the transformation that God has for us because we're not willing to accept the challenge that he has for us the grace-filled challenge that we find in so much scripture. That is what God wants to use to transform our lives. And so I'm going to step into a bit of something that's uncomfortable for me. I want to invite you to join me in it and just open up your heart. Again, like I asked earlier, open up your heart to receive just the good, the good challenge that our kind and loving Father has to declare over us today. The second thing is just to give you a little bit of background from Amos, because I think we need that. Anytime we're diving into scripture, we need to know the context, because the Old Testament, it's really big and long, and then it connects to the New Testament. There's just all these different pieces that um, we have to try to decipher as we're learning the context of scripture. So um, what I want to share with you first is that the book of Amos is one of the books of prophets, and it was written by, you guessed it, the prophet of Amos, the prophet Amos, not of Amos, Amos the prophet. Um, and he was from a place called Southern Judah. He was a shepherd and a fig farmer. I know that there is so much imagery about fig farming that you could probably get out of Amos. We're not going to go there today, but I encourage you, if that intrigues you that he was a fig farmer, go and research it. I'm sure you'll find some really interesting things. Um, and 150 years before Amos 
Israel had divided into the northern Israel kingdom and southern Judah. And Amos was in southern Judah, and he was looking up at northern Israel. And they were being ruled by a successful but corrupt king. Israel was experiencing more success than they'd experienced in a really long time, both financially and through their military. And they felt like they were just on top. But because this king was corrupt, he had also encouraged them to do things like worship idols. And this idol worship had caused there to be injustice and unrighteousness amongst the people of Israel. And Amos is sitting down in southern Judah, and he has this really unique perspective about what the people of Israel are doing. And he's feeling this call from the Lord with his unique perspective, seeing that they're not walking in righteousness, they're not walking in justice, that he needs to go and speak this word from God to the people of Israel. So that is what Amos's mission is when he brings this prophecy to them. So the last thing that I want to share with you this morning, and this is where it gets a little hard, is that this text was written to the people of Israel at a really corrupt time in their history. They were doing a lot of things that displeased God. They were walking in unrighteousness and injustice. And last week, Benton led us in a time of prayer over the people of Israel and Palestine and what they're going through right now. We just prayed over the nations of the world. And as we dive into this text this morning, I want you to keep that mindset, that heart of kindness and compassion and prayer to what those people are experiencing right now. Because what I'm not going to be doing this morning is dare to try to take what's written in Amos and make any sort of statement about what the people of Israel and Palestine are experiencing right now. I think that this is a message for us today, not a message that God might be trying to speak over them. So as we enter into this text this morning, as Christians, remember that we, as Gentiles in the New Testament, we learn that we have been grafted into the family of God. So now it's not Jew or Gentile. It is the Christian faith. It is us as believers in Jesus. So if there's a word in the Old Testament for the people of God today, it's for us in this room. It's for us to receive this morning and be transformed by it. So I just want to encourage you as I read this to hear with open hearts the word that God has for you this morning, for your life and for our church, and how he wants to transform your heart and our lives for the good of those around us. Okay? So just had to say all that before we dive in today because this is a really heavy text. So now you can open your Bible. And you can turn to Amos chapter 5. So if that's on your phone, that's great. You'll be able to find it really easily. If you're not on your phone, I want to tell you it's between Joel and Obadiah. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. If you go to Micah, you've gone too far. You've got to scooch back a little bit, okay, to find it. It's wedged in there. And we are going to be, like I said, in Amos chapter 5. Five, which starts out—I'm going to give you a second if you have your Bible, because like I said, it's a little tricky. It's a little tricky. I also have it on the screen, because I was like, this one's like, if you're doing Bible drill and they say Amos, you're like, oh, well, I might as well just—I've uh, lost this one. Okay, so um, Amos 5.1 starts out with these words. Listen to this message that I am singing for you, a lament, house of Israel. So the first four books are a revelation of this word that God has for Israel. The first book— is Amos telling the people of Israel that God sees all of the unrighteous, unjust things that are being done around the world. So not in Israel. He's saying, I see this, these people doing this, and these people doing this, and these people doing this. And then two through four is Amos telling them that God knows them more deeply as his chosen people 
So he sees even more deeply the unrighteous things that they're doing, and he wants to come and speak this word over them about it so that they can repent and start walking in the way of the Lord. Which brings us to Amos 5, where he says that it is a lament for the house of Israel, which essentially means that he is singing a funeral song over them, which is really, it's pretty intense. And what I read is that he actually, in Amos 5, he's actually like yell singing this, like the cry of a mourner at them, because he wants them to understand so strongly that if they don't turn away from what they're doing and change their hearts, they're dead. Like, that's what he's saying, that if you don't do something different, if you don't start walking a different way, this is your funeral song. I'm giving you a glimpse of it, and I'm singing it for you. So, um, as we keep going past verse 1, we're going to jump around a little bit, which might be slightly different than just reading it straight through, but I am the cruise ship captain of Amos 5 today, and I can take us wherever I want us to go, so that's how we're going to do it. So, we are going to actually jump all the way to verse 18. So if you can find verse 18, we're going to start there. And we're going to read down through verse 23. So let me read that for us. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. So I wanted to start here because this is what Amos is lamenting. This is why he's singing this funeral song is because the, the first thing that um, he's looking at here is this very sarcastic remark that they're longing for the day of the Lord. He's like, y'all are doing two things wrong. And the first thing that you're doing wrong is that you're longing for the day that the Messiah is going to come. And he tells them this in, in a pretty strong language. He's like, this is a mistake. And you want to know why? It's like, a man who's running from a lion, and then there's just a bear there instead. Or it's like someone who goes home after a long, hard day of work. Maybe they're ready to, like, relax, put on some Netflix, and as they're, like, leaning against the wall in tiredness, a snake just comes out and bites them. He's like, that's how mistaken you all are in longing for the day of the Lord, because it's not going to be a good day. It's going to be a day where you want Netflix and you get a snake instead. That's bad. That's how misguided they were about longing for God. And it's because we have to remember that Israel was in this place of success. And they were longing for the Messiah to come because this wasn't what they had always experienced. They hadn't always experienced this financial and military success. So they're like, this is great. We're living large right now. And when the Messiah comes, we get this forever. We don't have to be scared that anyone will ever take it from us. We get to live in this high and mighty place forever. And Amos is like, no, 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 you're not understanding. You are getting this all wrong. You are sorely mistaken. And then the second thing that we see here that God is upset with is how they're living out their religious traditions. The feasts, the worship gatherings, the assemblies, all of these, um, their sacrifices, their offerings, their worship, all of it is displeasing to God. In verse 21, he says he can't stand the stench of their solemn assemblies. 
He is so displeased with how they are choosing to worship him that it disgusts him. It smells like something rotten to him. This is such an important starting point for us in this series. I know it's kind of hard to take in, but it's such an important starting place because I truly believe each and every one of you in this room are here because you want to worship God in ways that are pleasing. You want to serve him. You want to honor him. You want to to be in relationship with him to such a point that it's pleasing to him, that he loves it, that he's engaged, and it doesn't smell bad to him. Um, That's such strong language. So how do we learn from Israel as we enter into this series together? What do we learn from them about why God is displeased with what they're doing? To learn this, we need to go back to verse 4. See, I told you we're going to jump around a little bit. So now we're going back to verse 4, and we're going to read through to verse 7. And it says here, I got to flip back, see? Um, For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba. Um, For Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Those who turn justice into wormwood also throw righteousness to the ground. Okay, so here we see the first thing that we can learn from Israel about how we today should be worshiping. And it's this, worship is not manufactured mountaintop moments. All of these places mentioned, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, they were places where God had moved miraculously in the past. And there was this expectation that if they just went to this place, that they got to this place, that they could get a bit of that transformative power that God had shown somebody else in the past for themselves. Now let's remember that this was a time of great prosperity for Israel. They felt like they had arrived. God, they felt like God, it was God is how they felt, was blessing them both financially and through their military accomplishments. But let's remember that this king of Israel that was causing them to have all this success was corrupt, and he encouraged them to worship idols. So they got so mixed up that they knew that these places were places where God had done something, but then they decided to take these idols that they were worshiping and also bring them to these holy sites because they're like, you know, maybe we'll get like double power from somewhere if we put these idols here and we know that God did something here. Now we're creating this like perfect place where like the power of something will come down and will transform our lives. They believed that there was something that they could do to garner enough favor with God or an idol or something that they would continue to receive this prosperity that they were experiencing as a result. So for this reason, they wanted, would want to keep traveling to these holy sites so they could keep getting more and more of what they thought was the thing that God had for them, this, this wealth, this financial prosperity, this military success. But what Amos is telling them is that they're looking for God in all of the wrong places and that they will not find the true God of Israel who wants to transform their lives at these hodgepodges of previous miracles and idol worship. That's not where they're going to find him, is what Amos is telling them. And the same is true for us today. God is not confined to the way that we want to experience breakthrough and blessings. 
He is not confined to how we want to experience it, to the power that we think that we want for ourselves so that we can experience that breakthrough that we think that we need. We can't go to worship services or kingdom communities or prayer nights trying to look at a physical place where miracles have happened, trying to manufacture a mountaintop moment that we think is going to bring us that miracle that we're longing for. Like maybe if we just come here enough and we sit here and we, we at, like operate in this space that we will make something come to us from our own power. It's not going to work out for us. Only through his power will we experience the breakthrough and the true healing that is the fruit of God. Now, to quote Ben Hardman, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying to not come into the, this space expectant that God is going to do something in your life. I'm not saying don't come here praying that the Lord is going to move in mighty and awesome ways. Please never stop doing that, ever. Please. But what I am saying is that life is hard, and there are some things that we all want to believe will make our life easier or gentler or will give us the dreams and aspirations that we have for ourselves. And we believe that we can get these things from these mountaintop moments in our own timing. But the truth is that if we go to church buildings or holy sites or houses of prayer, expecting to manufacture the mountaintop moments that we wish God would give us when we want them, we're seeking only the benefits of God and not relationship with him. And let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we're any better than these Israelites who brought all of these idols into their place of worship, hoping that it would increase the power of God in their lives. Because how many of us, myself included, come into church all mixed up about the things that we think are going to bring us happiness? Because the idols of 2023, they're really sneaky. They're different than when they took actual golden calves to Bethel and set them up and were worshiping them. We're bringing different things into the space inside of our hearts and inside of our lives. And they can deceive us into thinking that we're not doing the exact same thing. Today, for many of us, it's a million small things that give us this dopamine hit of satisfaction of ourselves and in our life that we're doing something that will make us successful in life. It's this distraction that gets our idol worship today. Our job, our relationship, our vices. And for many of us, they're vices that allow us to numb our days away instead of actively engaging in the fullness of what God has for us. And they're often distractions that we wouldn't be willing to give up because we like the feeling more of numbing in front of a screen than fully surrendering ourselves to the full work of God that he has for us and to be transformed. We don't want to have to stretch ourselves in service of the kingdom, so we hold on to these things. So ultimately, what does Amos say about all of this? He says that it's all going to fall away. These holy places, these places where they think they're going to go and receive the fullness of God, Bethel, Gilgal, they're all going to fall away. They're going to go. And they're not going to receive what they want unless they seek relationship with God. What does Amos say that will happen? It says in verse 7, those who turn justice into wormwood also throw righteousness to the ground. 
Through their actions, they have turned justice into bitterness, and they have thrown righteousness away. Now, before we continue, I want us to all be on the same page about what righteous and justice, righteousness and justice mean. So we're going to look at the Hebrew definitions just very, very quickly, and I'm going to share them with you, that the Hebrew words from this passage mean this. Righteousness means right relationship and equity with one another despite social differences. And justice means the actions you take to create righteousness. So righteousness is us all being in right and equal relationship with one another. And justice is the actions that we take as Christians to ensure that that's happening in the world. So when we seek the things that we want from God— Instead of what God wants from us, we lose this fruit of God. We lose this righteousness and this justice in our relationships, in our lives, and on the earth. Amos tells us that the physical places and the benefits that they are seeking will all come to nothing. But if we seek God, like we're being called to, we will live and we will see the things of God. So what's the good news for us in all of this? It's that God wants relationship with us. He doesn't want us to have relationships with physical places or acts of power that we think are God. He wants us to have direct relationship with him so that when we enter into that relationship with him, we will receive the true and full fruit of the transformation that he wants to speak into our lives, that he wants to give us through relationship with him. God's promise to us is that if we seek him, we will find him, and that he is a good father who wants to give us good gifts. He just wants to do it in ways that aren't only best for us, but are best for those around us as well. And we can't bypass that work that God wants to do by trying to manufacture those mountaintop moments for ourselves, or else we'll never receive the fullness of who he is. Okay, so let's go to the next section of scripture which is starting in verse 10, and then we're going to go through verse 15, which says, They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate, and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable, They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil. Pursue good and not evil, so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph." So the second thing that Israel can teach us about how we should be living out worship is that worship is sacrificial, not self-serving. Here in verses 10 through 15, we see that Israel's justice system had crumbled. So the way it used to work is that they would set up these courts at the city gates. And some high-standing person who's known for their integrity, for being in high moral standing in the community, would come and act as almost like a defense attorney on behalf of the vulnerable— they would fight for them in, the, in the, the civil argument that they were having. But with the corruption that was going on in Israel, these defense attorneys of the time were now 
scared to go and fight on behalf of the vulnerable, to fight for justice, to fight for righteousness. And they were scared um, because of just the fear and frustration that they were experiencing. And I believe we see so much of this today. We've become complacent about this part of Christian community. The word accountability has almost become like a four-letter word to us in the church. And it's because of those same reasons. It's out of this place of fear. Will I lose a friendship? Will I be seen as too legalistic or too rigid or unfun? Will they think that I'm judging them? Will, I think, will they think that I don't like them? We're scared to break the connections we have here by calling one another out on the things that we feel like God is calling us up into. Or maybe you fall into the lie that I do, that I, I have no place to hold anyone accountable. I, I, like Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. Like, they have nothing on me. Like, I have done much worse than them. Who am I to say anything to them? Uh, that's not my place. That's for the Holy Spirit to do. The Holy Spirit is the one who's meant to convict them. I do believe that. That sounded really sarcastic. I do believe the Holy Spirit convicts. But I believe we are with each other for a reason. And it's to call each other into everything that God has for us. And that's become really difficult to do in Christian community. Because maybe, like me, and like all of us, I don't think there's anyone in this room who has not experienced this feeling. We're scared to say something to somebody else because we don't want to be held to account. We do not want to be held to that higher standard. We do not want to be exposed or found out. That thing, that little habit, that 2023 idol that we're all living into, we don't want someone to call that out in us. We justify our own disobedience, and then we set up relational systems where the only kind of feedback we will allow is justification and support. I'm picturing like a girl's brunch. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? I, I hate to be that, like to, to talk about stereotypical women things when I'm up here, but I mean, it's just true. You know, you all go and you're like, man, this hard thing in life. Yeah, that's right. Like, that thing is hard. You don't need to just go home and watch Netflix. That's the best solution. You know, that's what a lot of times Christian community has become. Because guess what? Life is hard. We are all walking through really hard and difficult things. And when we hear our friends or our family not wanting to step into the, what the fullness of God has for them because it's going to be even more difficult, we're like, yeah, you know what? You're in a really hard season right now. I'm sure God will understand if you're disobedient this week. Because, you know, things will get easier next week, and then you can walk in that obedience that he has for you. That's what we want to hear from one another. We want to let each other off the hook in the name of the Lord, in the name of grace and kindness. And I think that that's where Israel was getting into trouble, because all of the morally upright people in the city didn't feel like they had a voice anymore, because the people who were benefiting from the systems that had been set up wanted to maintain, maintain the status quo. And oftentimes that's what our gatherings are about, helping each other maintain the status quo. And why do we do that? Because we're scared of change. We just are. Change is scary. And it's like what was happening in Israel. The wealthy liked things the way they were. They didn't want to change. They didn't want to hear from the morally upright that what they were benefiting from was hurting other people. No one wants to hear that. They just want to keep benefiting from the success that they're experiencing. But Amos had another warning for them here as well. He said, all of these things, these, the success that you're experiencing, these grand houses you're building, these vineyards you're setting up, these people had a very different life than us, right? 
just setting up some vineyards. Um, they're all going to fall away. It's all going to be destroyed. None of it is going to matter because you are not entering into the things that God has for you. Because the truth is that sowing into scarcity will only reap scarcity. If we believe that there's only so much available in the kingdom of heaven, and that we, in our power, have to hold on to those things for ourselves, even at the detriment of other people, we will only reap what we sow. And let's be honest, normally we have really good reasons for wanting to protect what we have. Every single person in this room I know has been through a wilderness season. Just like the Israelites, you walked through a really hard season where you had nothing. And you were waiting for that mountaintop moment. That's why we try to manufacture them, because being in the wilderness is terrible. None of us want to experience that. So when we come out on the other side and we're experiencing all of the success and the dreams and the things that we've been waiting for, we convince ourselves that it's directly from God. Just like the Israelites did. They thought that they were receive, what they were receiving was from God. Not because of this idol worship that was given to them by a corrupt king. They thought that God had given them the blessings that they deserved because of their time in the wilderness. And none of us want to go back to that place. And the ironic thing is, is that when we're in the wilderness, we often lean on God more because we're trying to manufacture that mountaintop moment that will get us that breakthrough. But then when we get it, when we're on the other side of it, and we think that we've been given the blessing from God that we've been looking for, we immediately try to hold on to it in our own strength. We say, okay, now this is my thing to protect, and I'm not going to give up anything or I might lose it. Because if I give an inch, I will be back in the valley. That's what we convince ourselves of. We don't leave God in his proper place of power over our lives. We try to control it all. We fear that surrender will mean a bad life for us. We're scared of what God might call us to do or call us to give up. That if we seek justice for others, we'll lose it for ourselves. That's what that scarcity mindset means that if we allow anyone else to have anything, we will be back in the desert. That's the lie that we believe about all of this. But the truth is that God cares more about your healing and your transformation than he does about any success that you could be experiencing. And he cares more about your neighbor than he does the things of this world. And so we need to let him have that place in our lives. In verse 14 and 15, we see these calls. Pursue good and not evil. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice at the city gate. So again, we ask, what is the good news for us here? And it's that God wants us to partner with him in the justice and righteousness that he wants to see on the earth. He wants us to be transformed, to seek him and be transformed by relationship with him and then trust him enough to lay down all of the things that we think we want for ourselves so that the whole world can experience the love and the kindness of God. And he's asking for us to do that in partnership with him. He wants us, he's inviting us into that good work of love and justice and righteousness on the earth. So what must we do to live a life of worship that is pleasing to God? We must seek him, seek relationship with him, and the true transformation that comes from that. And then we must seek good for others, that justice at the city gate. This is exactly what Jesus means when he tells us what the two greatest commandments are, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
that's all of you, everything that you are, everything that you have, to love God with that, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two simple things that Israel was getting wrong. They weren't seeking God and they weren't seeking good. They were seeking mountaintop moments for themselves and the things that they wanted to receive from God. In verse 24, we see this final call from Amos. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. God was displeased with Israel because of their hypocrisy. They felt like they in their own power could just turn off the stream of righteousness whenever they wanted to. They were like, okay, you know what? I'll be righteous in the temple. I'll be righteous with my supposed sacrifices. I'll be righteous with this harp, but I will not be righteous if it doesn't benefit me. I will not be righteous when it comes to justice for the poor because I might lose something. They were trying to control what their religion produced instead of surrendering to what God was calling them to. So that's the charge for us today. Do we want to sing praises to a God who we hope will maintain systems that benefit us? Or do we want to fully surrender every single part of our lives to a God who might turn everything upside down out of love for us and love for the world? If our worship isn't actually producing an unfailing overflow of righteousness and justice, then something is off. Something is wrong. If the people around us in our everyday life aren't experiencing the transformative love of God through being in relationship with us, because of that overflow of the worship that we experience in this space, something is off. We should be seeing hope and healing come to the places that we are in, or else our worship is not producing the good work in us that God desires. So now as we wrap up today, the band, y'all can come on up. Um, Go ahead and come up. I want us to think about what this actually looks like in our lives. Because this can quickly turn into a list of things that we need to be doing to live rightly in in God's eyes, to not be smelly in front of him, right? To have this this pleasing aroma to him. This can quickly just add to our to-do list and be like, okay, Lord, how can I make sure that I'm not like raising a stench to you? How can I make sure I'm living it with righteous and justice every single day of life? Um, But if we're not careful, that will just turn into more hypocrisy because then we're just trying to perform for the Lord. And we've stepped out of that relationship with him that's meant to be transforming us. God is not looking for perfection. He knew that we could never do that. That's why he sent Jesus to cover us, to cover our imperfections because we can't do it. Living a life of righteousness and justice was never meant to be about perfection or earning affection or earning our salvation or about creating this barrier of guilt and shame between us and the Father. If that's what we're experiencing, again, it's, it's not right. That's not what God has for us. It's about choosing good the best that we can. Recently, I was being kind of hard on myself because there was this, this new discipline I was trying to walk into and like halfway through the day I was just like I forgot like I just forgot I just didn't do it how many of us have been there we're we're like I did not do that thing I said I was going to start on Monday today is Monday it is 2 p.m. I did not do that thing I said I was going to do and if you're anything like me you can get so hard on yourself that you can just be like I'm just going to give up you know I didn't do it today I didn't reach the mark I'm not doing it perfectly so I'm just going to give up and the Lord brought this verse to my mind Galatians 6 9 which says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
God is asking us to just continue to do good. And even when it's hard, even when it feels difficult, even when it doesn't benefit every single second of the day of our life, that we would just not grow weary in it. That we would take each and every next step that he's calling us into to see his righteousness and his justice on the earth. And if we don't give up, we're gonna reap a harvest that's from God, that is the thing he has for us, the good news that he has for our lives and for the lives of those around us. Romans 12, one says it like this, says the call like this, the call to worship. Therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God is asking us to give up the things of this world, the things that look and feel successful to us because the world tells us that they are. And that's really difficult. It's really difficult to walk that, that hard line. But all this requires from us is relationship with him and a willingness to just stand open-handed and say, Lord, all that I have is yours. Everything that I even perceive to have, it's already yours. It's when we hold our fists like this and not, don't allow God to move that we won't experience this transformation. That trusting him would, can, will give us more than we could ever imagine. So we come back to that question that we're gonna be trying to answer through this series. Why are we here? Why do we gather on a Sunday? Why do we do this week in and week out? And we're gonna continue to explore the answer to this question, but for today, what I wanna leave you with is just these two simple things that I think God is calling us to for why we're here. We're here to seek God and live, live fully in relationship with him. And then we're here to seek good, to seek the good for those in our lives, to seek righteousness and justice on this earth so that God's hope and healing can be known by all.